0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we will explore China's approach towards Hong Kong as we track recent developments in the region. In 1997, the United Kingdom returned Hong Kong to China. As part of the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, China agreed that Hong Kong would maintain a high degree of autonomy for at least 50 years, until 2047. The Declaration, as well as the Basic Law of Hong Kong, state that the city would have independent judicial power and maintain its capitalist system. The city was to be governed as a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China under China's One Country, Two Systems model. In recent years, Beijing has tightened its grip on Hong Kong and challenged the status of the Joint Declaration, stating that it is a historical document with no practical significance. In 2019, discontent over a proposed bill to extradite criminal suspects to mainland China led to a series of democratic protests in Hong Kong, some of which turned into violent confrontations between protesters and police. Many feared that the bill would undermine Hong Kong's judicial independence and endanger its dissidents, residents, and activists. While the city's government withdrew the extradition bill, the bill has sparked a larger push for greater freedoms including demands for universal suffrage and investigations into police brutality. Beijing, however, viewed developments in Hong Kong as threatening China's control over the city. As a result, China imposed a national security law on Hong Kong in 2020 that criminalized acts of secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces to endanger national security. The law was put into effect immediately and was broadly applied, from censoring information to denying subjects the right to jury trials. While the law reduced the city's autonomy and eroded political freedoms, Beijing has argued that the law is necessary to safeguard Hong Kong's long-term prosperity and stability. Since 2019, tens of thousands of Hong Kong residents have been arrested for participating in protests. Over 100 people, including pro-democracy activists and lawmakers, have been arrested under the national security law. Yet, in the face of international criticism and local resistance, China has continued to push its Hong Kong agenda forward. Last month, Hong Kong's pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily was stormed by police officers with authorities stating that the outlet violated the national security law. Apple Daily's top editors and journalists were arrested. Recently, there's news that China may seek to further strengthen and expand its ability to punish Hong Kong residents for behavior that threatens national security beyond those identified in the 2020 national security law. Here with me to discuss the complexities of China's approach towards Hong Kong is Ambassador Kurt Tong. Ambassador Tong previously served as the U.S. Council General and Chief of Mission in Hong Kong and Macau, in addition to various positions at the Department of State and National Security Council. He is currently a partner at the Asia Group, where he leads the firm's work on Japan, Hong Kong, and East Asia. Kurt, thank you for joining us today.
1: It's a real pleasure, Bonnie. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. So the topic that we're covering today is Hong Kong. And as you know, it's a topic that's been in the news quite a bit. So I'd like to start off the conversation by asking you to characterize and describe the situation in Hong Kong. In particular, what are you paying the most attention to in terms of what Hong Kong is doing and what's happening on the ground in terms of how the local residents are responding?
1: Well, obviously, I think we all need to pay close attention to what the central government is doing and the signals that it's sending about its intentions toward the city and then on the receiving end of chinese policy the reaction from the variety of people in hong kong as you know the hong kong society is quite diverse in terms of its political views in terms of its economic standing and aspirations for the future so what's happening in hong kong has had different impacts on different people in the city and it's important to be aware of that and think about it from that perspective of diversity. But one of the things that I actually focus on is, are people leaving? Are they staying? Are they adjusting their lifestyles or their approach to daily life, You know, including political activity, but perhaps other aspects of their general behavior and activity? What are they doing with their financial assets? All of this is something that's more accessible anecdotally than it is in hard numbers or data, but Mm -hmm. those are the types of things that I've been trying to observe, made very difficult, of course, by the COVID situation. I think people in Hong Kong are frustrated generally that they're not really able to travel freely because of the difficulty of the length of quarantines, both going and coming back to Hong Kong. And also people from outside Hong Kong are frustrated that they can't go to that fine city and to do business or see their friends.
0: So could you talk a little bit about some of the changes that you mentioned? So are you seeing that people are leaving Hong Kong in larger numbers? Are you seeing, for example, businesses leaving Hong Kong? Are you seeing more or less political activism in the last couple of months? We'd just love to get your take, even anecdotally.
1: I don't think that many people have left. I think a certain number of political activists have decided to leave the city because they don't want to go to jail in some cases, or their line of business is no longer viable. And so they've decided to move on. There are, of course, people that are in that line of business of political activism who don't have options to leave or go elsewhere. And then, interestingly, recently, there's been some cases of people who are intending to leave and have been unable to do so, which I think has created some concern amongst their peers. But again, it, it depends upon the type of people. I don't think that many people have seriously considered leaving. In terms of private behavior in asset distribution i mean i have in mind this theoretical wealthy hong kong family that used to perhaps have a quarter of its assets outside the city and real estate or invested in their human capital and their children's education or things like that but the bulk of it in hong kong and many of those people i think have shifted the weight a little bit more overseas that still kept some in the city and they're trying to figure it out. I think a lot of people are just concerned, confused and trying to sort out what the future looks like in the city and then how they fit into the changed environment there. And then at the business level, again, most businesses have not changed their operations or their approach, but some have moved some of their working capital offshore or some of their operations. And I think it really depends upon the line of business Mm -hmm. how much that is impacted by politics. And then to a very significant extent, it depends upon how much those businesses are focused on China business. Because Mm -hmm. if your primary reason for being in Hong Kong was access to China, that hasn't changed much at all. And so people in that category of business activity, I think, are feeling okay.
0: Could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing that concerns you the most in terms of developments related to China's national security law? as well as China's overall approach towards the region, do you think from your perspective that China still has a one country, two systems model for Hong Kong, or has that model being revised?
1: You know, the word that I key on the most these days when thinking about Hong Kong is tolerance. So the one country, two systems approach to Hong Kong requires tolerance on the part of the central government towards differences between Hong Kong and the rest of China. And those differences come in multiple forms, political system differences, economic system differences, cultural differences, even language differences, and certainly a big gap in terms of outlook and what is considered the desirable shape and form of society. And so for much of the post-Handover period, after 1997, tolerance was given a high priority by the central government because of the economic value of Hong Kong and my own personal view the belief in beijing that the various differences were interrelated and that in order to have a hong kong that operated differently economically that beijing had to allow hong kong to operate differently in terms of freedom of information in terms of its political system and how it operated with the outside world and that tolerance has not entirely evaporated, but diminished significantly in recent years. And that was very much what I observed when I was there as Consul General from 2016 to 19. And it's continuing now. So has One Country, Two Systems gone away? Not entirely. No. I mean, Hong Kong still has different laws, different economic system, different approaches to problems. It feels different. It's a different kind of society than the rest of China, but the direction of change is more clearly toward minimizing, or in some cases, eliminating those differences Mm -hmm. and having a smaller gap between Mm -hmm. the mainland. And so the real discussion I think is around what specific aspects of Hong Kong's differences has the central government become most intolerant toward? And then how does that result in policy and how does it affect people's lives? And I think it varies. In some things, not much has changed at all in some areas, for example, electoral politics and the degree to which one can, without any limitations, utilize Hong Kong's rights of freedom of expression and assembly and political activity to participate in politics in a similar fashion to what would be the case in in Western democracies. Hong Kongers are well-educated about how Western democracies work, and many of them aspire to having much of that system operate in Hong Kong. And that has become, by explicit statement from Beijing, something that is not welcome in the city. And both the rhetoric and the action from Beijing is much more explicitly directed against democratic activity as something of value.
0: What would you characterize as some of the top factors driving this intolerance on Beijing's part? Is it what they're seeing in terms of what they sentence as more activism, more push towards democracy on Hong Kong's end? Is it insecurity on Beijing's end that may not necessarily be all tied to Hong Kong, or is it a combination of different factors that you're seeing both domestically that Chinese leaders are seeing domestically within mainland China and factors on the ground in Hong Kong, or maybe informed foreign policy, external factors that influencing Beijing's perspective with respect to Hong Kong?
1: Well, I think you've already named many of the factors. Right in my own mind, the, of the three, the relationship between Hong Kong and China, and the relationship between China and the rest of the world. I think the most important one actually is the direction of policy and society in the mainland itself as the most important of the three driving factors, although all three are important. I think that China has trended in a direction that is less tolerant of differences in general, inside China, more authoritarian in nature, and more keyed on nationalism, and all these that smart folk like yourselves are talking about all the time and that has a washover effect on hong kong policy which has then led things to lean in the direction of intolerance because each of these decision points there's like a specific decision being made and the question is which way is policy leaning is it leaning towards tolerance is it leaning towards intolerance and the leaning has been towards intolerance and that has informed a lot of policy decisions now at the same time the relationship between hong kong and the mainland is a big factor. And over the last decade, increasingly, and to the consternation of people in the mainland, the fact that Hong Kong was part of China did not result in increasing parallel nature or congruence between the outlook for the future of people in Hong Kong and people in China. So folks in China, many of them, not just the government, but the population at large, were expecting Hong Kong to become more like China, just naturally and want to be more like China. And that was not taking place. Hong Kong in fact their vision and expectations were headed in one direction while China's expectations for what Hong Kong people should expect set it in another direction. And that gap exposed itself in numerous ways and started coming to a pitch in the national education question in 2011 and then with the electoral reform question in 2014 and 15. And then more fiercely again with the extradition bill question in 2019, and those incidences themselves, and also even before that in the national security law debate in 2003. So, that all these different times when Hong Kong was showing Beijing very clearly and obviously that it was not seeing the future in the same way that Beijing was. And that created problems and ultimately led them to more intolerance by China. And then, as each of those episodes that I described was more and more offensive to the central government from the central government's perspective, that has started feeding on itself in terms of policy. We can talk later about the institutionalization of that leaning, but that is also a factor in changes in Hong Kong. And then the third element, as you mentioned, China's external relations with the rest of the world have become increasingly prickly. especially with the United States, but not exclusively with the United States. And that is also a factor. And so China sees foreigners speaking out about Hong Kong and reminding China of the promises that it made to genuine one country, two systems without many reservations as gross interference. And when China says that this is gross interference in their domestic affairs, they mean it. That's just not a talking point. They feel that this is wrong for foreign countries to do that. And so. The fact that the relationships are frayed to start with, and these overseas nations that China is having difficult slash bad relations with are speaking out about Hong Kong actually makes China want to double down on its approach to the city. So all those are factors. I do think that's the decreasing order of relevance. However, Hong Kong is not a proxy battle between the West and China, and it's also not a battle between the Hong Kong people and China. Hong Kong is part of China, so it's not a proxy battle, and. The ultimate direction of Hong Kong is decided in Beijing. So it's not like a battle between the Hong Kong people and China either. It's a question of China's own enlightened self-interest of allowing diversity within its society in order to make it a richer, more prosperous and better place to live, which is what we all hope China starts to hope for.
0: Thank you, Kurt. As you were walking through these different factors and explaining the complexities, I couldn't help think that it seems like the picture that you're portraying is one of China already on the direction and having made significant progress in the direction of intolerance. And what I didn't hear from the discussion was necessarily anything that you could see that would pull China away from its current direction. Are you seeing anything that could allow China or force Chinese leaders to rethink its approach towards Hong Kong?
1: I'm not sure about fundamentally rethink, but I'm hopeful that the Beijing government will realize that it has taken enough specific steps over the past several years to actually accomplish its objectives of sanding off the rough edges of Hong Kong's behavior and public profile and activity such that what remains in terms of the differences between Hong Kong and the rest of China are tolerable. And then therefore they switch back to tolerance. Because I don't think China has any problem with the fiscal system being separate the government expenditure system with hong kong setting its own rules for how buses operate how the city manages its social affairs its pensions lots of important topics even the land issue and fundamental questions you know very important questions about hong kong development i think mainland's perfectly happy to have hong kong deal with those problems themselves and have hong kongers sort it out for themselves and so I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll realize that they've done enough on both the national security law and the electoral changes from their perspective to institutionalize a system where they don't have to hear people calling for independence and the like inside the city, which you know, from a Western perspective, we tolerate that. And I had lots of discussions like this when I was consul general, like, is it wrong to call for independence? Like, so if people in Rhode Island Say they want to be independent from the rest of the United States, everyone just mostly would laugh at them and dismiss it as silly and then move on. But that becomes it's different when Hong Kong used to be separate and now it's mm-hmm. part of China. And so I understand the differences there. But again, it gets back to that question of tolerance. I, I think, I personally think that China has, even from China's perspective, done enough at this point to maybe not dial back, but just leave the dial where it is in terms of pressure that it's putting on the city. We would all prefer them to dial it back, and people in Hong Kong prefer to dial it back. But I think in the first instance, what we should be hoping for in the short term is for China to just kind of let up mm-hmm. and leave things where they are and realize they've done enough.
0: It does seem, Leon, from my reading of the news, that China is dialing things up a little. And maybe that is a partial reaction to some of the news about alleged bomb plots being found in Hong Kong whether it's by teenagers or folks who are on the younger end of the spectrum, do you see things potentially escalating in the next couple of months? Or is it very much a, it will depend on how things go in the city?
1: I don't expect them to escalate. Can't rule it out.
0: So are we saying them, are you referring to Beijing? Are you referring to local residents?
1: Local residents. And you you mentioned potential bombing activity or, or terrorist activity. I think that has not begun in Hong Kong and there are reasons to hope that it would not just based on the way society works there. Not just the access to material and also the it's a very dense urban society. It's, it's, it's relatively easy place to police illegal activity. But I just hope that the young people and others in Hong Kong have not been driven into such a sort of nihilistic, hopeless mindset that they start to do that kind of thing. Because it is a prosperous, functioning society. And it just now doesn't have the same political freedoms that it had previously or that people wanted. So hopefully things will stabilize. Hopefully that Beijing will lighten up, realize that what it has in the city is worth preserving and tolerating differences in order to maintain.
0: On that note, I want to follow up with a question from your perspective. Do you think Beijing more or less still has the same goals for Hong Kong, say today versus three or four years ago, a very successful Hong Kong that's economically vibrant Or do you see that Beijing still wants Hong Kong to be an economic center, but wants to be able to incorporate Hong Kong in a lot of different ways that we didn't necessarily see a couple of years ago, including much stronger political control over Hong Kong, being able to apply some of the mainland laws to Hong Kong? Or basically, what do you see as Beijing's goals? Do you see any significant changes now versus before?
1: There are things that Beijing would like to have Hong Kong achieve and things that it would like to have it not do. And so in recent years, it's been focusing more on things it doesn't want it to do, as opposed to things that it wants it to achieve. But I do think that Beijing still wants Hong Kong to be a prosperous, globally connected and important international financial center, center for logistics, perhaps more constrained, but still for academic activity, for research and development and the like. Some of those um, aspirations will be harder to accomplish given some of the changes in Hong Kong, but some of them will be just as feasible. In particular, I think the number one thing is Hong Kong as a financial center. Because with the renminbi not yet fully convertible and capital controls still in in force in China, and China's had difficulty developing internal financial markets that replicate all of the depth and complexity of, say, London or New York, even despite being perhaps the world's largest economy, China does not have internally, except for Hong Kong, one of the world's best financial centers. And so Hong Kong has a very important role to play there in bridging the Chinese economy with the rest of the global economy, particularly on the financial front. You know, It used to be more important on, in terms of manufacturing investment flows and even physical trade than it is now. But that financial piece is still extraordinarily significant and important. And I think China wants to keep that. So I I would hope that the central government observers of Hong Kong would realize, for example, that they need to be careful around issues like access to the internet, issues around the legal framework, the common law legal framework that underpins commercial and financial activity in Hong Kong, and make sure that there is not a loss of confidence in those, because those are important underpinnings of Hong Kong as an international financial center. And the existence of the national security law and some provisions in that law do cast some question on whether a few years from now, the internet will still be fully connected. People will still be able to do analytical work without politicization, and people will be able to have access to common law, a common law jurisdiction, which more closely resembles that of London than of Beijing or Shanghai, which is a a big advantage in contracting activity. And you know, it fits with a lot of China's ambitions. Even the Belt and Road activities, a lot of it's official finance straight out of Beijing, but some of it ends up getting contracts signed in Hong Kong because of the legal system. So all of that is self-reinforcing and very, very useful to China. With an aging population and potentially slowing growth rate, Squeezing those extra pieces of efficiency, productivity growth out of their economy is going to be more and more important. So from that perspective, Hong Kong has great value.
0: Yeah, Kurt, when you were going through the list of issues or items that Beijing should pay attention to, what I didn't hear you mention was, for example, political freedoms. And you also didn't mention, for example, freedom of speech, freedom of press. So would it be correct to take what you're saying and if I was to interpret it as even if China decides to politically crack down on Hong Kong, as long as a lot of Hong Kong's basic economic system remains in place, Beijing will still be able to help Hong Kong prosper and foreign companies will still like to continue to engage in business in Hong Kong. Is that how you view the situation or do you think foreign companies would reassess operating in Hong Kong if I guess the political system changes quite a bit in Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, well, you mentioned freedom of speech, freedom of media, freedom of information. That's really important, and it's interconnected, right? So, I very much recall Xi Jinping's speech in Hong Kong in July of 2017. He came for the 20th anniversary of the handover, and he took a red line approach. He said, "We're all for one country, systems," but, and then he proceeded to describe things which are redlined out, and for. A number of the following years, it seemed like that was the policy. What concerns me now and concerns a lot of people in Hong Kong is that the red line isn't stable and that it keeps sort of moving. So clearly active public advocacy of independence is explicitly under national security law a crime in Hong Kong and you're probably going to get prosecuted for it. Now, advocating that you prefer to speak Cantonese is that going to be a crime or is that okay? And I think the more vague the line is, the easier it is to use intimidation to avoid political problems from China's perspective. But the more vague the line is, the more that same uncertainty could lead more people to say, well, maybe I don't want to do business in Hong Kong. I want to go somewhere else. And I think it depends, again, on the line of which business activity you are and what your individual personal tolerance is. I've had conversations with Hong Kongers where they're debating with themselves. They really honestly don't know how much it matters to them to be in a free society versus staying where they've always lived and their family is, and they've got a nice house and they make money. And so it's complicated. You know, Bonnie, next week, I'm going to put out a foreign affairs piece that basically points out that fact that it's really complicated. And so for people in the United States and and you know Western countries, people should be thinking it is complicated and, and it's not really a question of, Hong Kong is just the way it always was, or Hong Kong is completely changed and not at all the way it used to be. It's much more complicated than that.
0: So Kurt, I know uh, in addition to working on Hong Kong, you also focus on the larger Indo-Pacific region, including Japan and Taiwan. So I wanted to also talk a little bit about that. So when we talk about the one country, two systems, well, that's also a model that China has for Taiwan. So from your perspective, how do you see What's happening with Hong Kong and the rethinking of the one China two system? How does that apply to Taiwan? Do you see Beijing significantly questioning that model for Taiwan? Or does Beijing more or less want to apply some revised version of that model to Taiwan still?
1: You know, I'm not sure. To be honest, I'm not ducking the question, but I'm honestly not sure whether Beijing would make a credible, detailed offer to Taiwan at this point, outlining what one country two systems might look like for the people of Taiwan? I don't know. And if so, what would that offer look like? I think people in Taiwan, in order to consider such a proposal would wanna know a lot of detail and their observations on that detail would be very much informed by what they've seen happening in Hong Kong. So I'm not sure whether the Venn diagram in terms of the aspirations of the Taiwan people and China's government has much overlap at this point in terms of describing a status quo that would be acceptable to both sides. But in that context, it's still important that both sides remain open to that possibility because that helps stabilize the situation, which is very, very important for everybody.
0: Okay. Sure. So I want to sort of wrap up the discussion by focusing, for example, what the United States should do, as well as what some of our closest allies and partners like Japan should do. I know you've written quite a bit on what the United States can and should do. I wanted you to talk a little bit about, do you think the current administration, Biden administration is taking the right approach towards Hong Kong? And do you think the administration could do more? And if so, in what ways?
1: I don't have too many complaints about the U.S. government policy at this point. I think at appropriate instances, the administration has spoken out and has done so in ways that are impactful and useful, and particularly by constantly making reference to the Sino-British Joint Declaration and the basic law as the approach that China said it would take to the city and pointing out the delta the gap between what china said it would do and what it has been doing in recent years that's fundamentally the right approach both analytically and rhetorically when you get into the then specifics about whether the us should be using carrots and sticks and the like a lot of this is actually at this point water under the bridge and i've both written and spoken a lot about some of the various tools prior to president trump's decision to normalize relations between the United States and Hong Kong, meaning remove many, not all, but many of the differences in treatment that the U.S. applies to Hong Kong in terms of U.S. law. I advocated against that because I was concerned that it would turn out to be kind of a paper tiger exercise. And that's essentially how it did turn out. The U.S. made those changes, and it didn't really have much impact on the situation. And then once having done that, then one can no longer hold that in abeyance as an action later. Although, you know, I have great sympathy for President Trump's decision because the national security law was such a big change from the promises of one country, two systems under the basic law that it probably justified significant action. So going forward, in actual response to your question, what I would hope to see is consistency and multilateralness. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm concerned that people will become accustomed to the new situation in Hong Kong and stop remembering that there was and remains an alternative of something that is more genuinely one country, two systems. Mm -hmm. And that that was promised to Hong Kong for 50 years, not for 23 years. And that that will be multilateral in nature and that there will be a number of countries making that statement. Because I think that significantly adds to the power of the argument. And the fact that the G7 made reference to it, the U.S. EU meeting, et cetera, is, is useful. I personally think it would be great to have some specific follow-up mechanisms on that to continually bring that, the issue to the fore.
0: So i like to end on this positive note. Thank you very much, Kurt, for not only laying out the complexities of what's happening in Hong Kong, but also describing what the United States as well as a larger international community could do, including taking more multilateral action to highlight the issues in Hong Kong and encouraging China to pay attention to its activities in Hong Kong and to the extent possible, be more tolerant of developments in the region. So let me thank you again for joining me today. And I look forward to more writings and more speeches from your end about not only Hong Kong, but also regional issues. Thank you, Kurt.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. I really enjoyed it.